ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at this doctrine of the rapture. The title of tonight's message is, Are You Ready for the Rapture? So we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Well, I hope that was my water. I just took it and drank it. But I guess we're all family, huh? <laughs> all right. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go ahead and stand as we read God's holy word together. We'll begin reading here in First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon our study tonight as we look at this precious doctrine the rapture of believers, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we be not only comforted, but as your people motivated for greater faithfulness in our service to thee. We thank you for the truth of your word. Open our eyes and our minds tonight to your word. Conform us more into the image of thy dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing for this message, one article I read, it spoke of a very popular CBS television show titled Without a Trace. I don't endorse the show. I know nothing of the show. But what was interesting about it was it was about, it was set in New York City special FBI missing persons unit. I guess the idea of the show is that there was a unit dedicated by the FBI to search people out who had simply vanished. They were not to be found. And so they would go seek these people who were simply vanished. At the end of each episode, however, the show does touch on some reality. By providing a public service information for the FBI of true people who are missing and their families are looking for them as well as the FBI. Another TV show built on the same theme of missing persons didn't last very long. I believe it was put out by Fox Broadcasting, a drama titled Vanished lasted 13 episodes, and of course, they never came to a conclusion, so some people that were fans of this show were upset about it. Today, if you were to pick up the average newspaper, there would be headlines in there about people missing, people who are vanished. Things such, headlines such as, relatives wait for word of vanished sailors, or man vanishes after a concert, 
or searches continues for woman who has vanished from her hometown. These are the headlines that we would read if we were to pick up an everyday newspaper. We read such headlines and wonder, what could have happened to that missing person? Why are they missing? How could he be there one moment and then gone the next? According to the Bible, there's a time coming when this very thing will happen, but on a massive and global scale. A day is coming when millions of people will suddenly vanish. When that event occurs, calling the FBI will be of no use. What will this worldwide phenomenon be like? And of course, that is uh, many people who go beyond the scriptures begin to speculate and make lots of money writing fiction novels about that account. Some of us are familiar with mass evacuations that leave large areas empty. Back in October 2007, 350,000 homes were evacuated down south because of the fires that were blazing. Imagine a person being asleep for two days and then waking up in that area there down south after 350,000 people, homes, have left, really over a million people. A person is asleep for several days, wakes up, and he finds out, where are my neighbors? Where's everybody at? And sees the smoke in the air. He probably is thinking, I've been left behind. The rapture's true. Unlike most modern-day treatments of the subject of the rapture, Paul's concern here was not doctrinal, but it was, uh, though it, was, it is very doctrinal, it was pastoral. And what I mean by that is that his intent here was not just to give a detailed uh, description of the rapture to satisfy our curiosity, but it was written to the Thessalonian church to comfort them. Because some of the believers in that assembly had died, and they were uncertain of what's going to happen to these that have died before the rapture. And so he writes with concern for this church. The intent of the other two passages, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in John chapter 14 that deal with the rapture are also written for similar purposes to encourage God's people. The Thessalonians fears that they were they fear that they were in the day of the Lord because of their suffering and the persecution that they were going through they were very concerned why were they concerned well as they were suffering they thought i they thought that well the great tribulation the day of the Lord being that time when God's wrath is poured out they thought they were going to escape that And because they held to most likely pre-tribulation rapture, they were concerned because now they're suffering. Maybe they are in the tribulation period. Maybe somehow they missed the rapture, so they were concerned for themselves as they were suffering and being persecuted for the faith. By the way, if the rapture was going to happen at the end of the tribulation, they would have rejoiced that their loved ones who have died would not be going through that period that they were enduring because they believed They were in the great tribulation period. But they were concerned because they thought they missed this event of our Lord coming for church-age believers. In verse 13 we read, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now when we find this word sleep in the New Testament, it is used many times. It is true for someone who's literally asleep, what you plan on doing tonight and hopefully you don't do during the message. 
But there are times when the word sleep is used metaphorically to refer to what happens to a Christian's body when they die. For example, in John chapter 11, when the news came to Jesus and the disciples that Lazarus had died, Jesus said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And of course, it was referring to the body of Lazarus being placed in the tomb. When Stephen there in Acts chapter 7 was preaching the word of God and they drug him out and they were stoning him to death. The word of God records in Acts seven sixty, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, his body went to sleep. He died. The same thing is said in Acts thirteen thirty six of David, how he fell asleep. The believers who abused the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.30. The Word of God speaks of the discipline that God brought to the membership there. The Word of God says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And so we see here that the word sleep applies to the body of the believer, referring to the believer's body being at rest. But the word sleep is never used metaphorically of a person's spirit. It is important to remember the New Testament, the word sleep only applies to the body and never to the soul. Soul sleep is a teaching that people have taught throughout the centuries. It is a false teaching that that teaches that the souls of the dead are unconscious. They're asleep. They are eternally asleep. Eternally mimis, if I could use that advanced vocabulary. They're asleep. But yet the Bible presents those who are dead very much alive. In fact, in Luke 16, when our Lord spoke of the rich man and Lazarus, it says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who laid at his gate full of sores. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That is, he had a conscious existence after his body went to sleep. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 8 to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That is, when a believer's body does go to sleep in death, your soul does not sleep. For the believer, he is immediately, consciously in the presence of the Lord. This is why when Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 1.21, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not, that is, I do not know. For I am straight betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I have a desire, he says, to be here helping you, the church at Philippi, but I have a greater desire to depart from you, that is in death, and to be with the Lord. So the idea of soul sleep is unbiblical, but the idea of our body sleeping in death is biblical. The believer, when he dies, goes immediately in the presence of God. In fact, we're given a little glimpse of it. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and they are not asleep. In fact, the Bible says 
And they, that is the dead believers who died here on earth, who are now spiritual in the presence of God, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? They are worshiping and praying there in heaven in the presence of God. They are very much alive after death. So I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that is the believers who have died, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now the word of God does not tell us that when a believer dies you should not weep. It is natural to weep, to cry when a loved one dies, when a loved one passes on. In fact, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in John chapter 11, at the death of Lazarus, the Bible says, Jesus wept. That's a pretty good memory verse. You can memorize that pretty easy. Jesus wept. However, the apostle did not have that, the kind of grief in mind here. He had the, the type of grief of others who have no hope. That is, you should not grieve like the unsaved when a saved person dies. Uh, you should not grieve like those who have no hope. Who are the people that do not have hope? It is the unbeliever. Ephesians 2.12 describes the unsaved as, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. For them there is no hope. But for the believer there is a very living hope. The reality that when he exits this body that is decaying every day, he enters into the presence of Almighty God. It was to give these early believers hope and comfort that Paul discusses the issue of the rapture. So he's not writing to uh, prophecy buffs who want to find out the address of the Antichrist and who want to know all these details. And so he's writing about the doctrine to them. No, no, no. Paul is writing to a church that is suffering. And they need comfort, everyday comfort. And through the daily grinds of life, that their eyes can be fixed on Christ. That their eyes will be fixed on eternity. So we're given here in our text, we're going to look at a fourfold description of it. We're going to look at, number one tonight, the pillars of the rapture. The pillars of this rapture doctrine. And we're going to look at the pillars of the rapture doctrine similar to a stool, a three-legged stool. That stool stands on three legs. You take away one of those legs, it will fall down. So this doctrine of the rapture is built on three realities, and we're going to look at that. Now, it is the death and the resurrection of Christ, and the divine revelation given to the Apostle Paul. And secondly, we're going to see the participants of the rapture. Who participates in the rapture? Well, all believers, both dead and living, when Christ comes in the air to rapture up his own. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the plan, or the order of how this rapture takes place. And then lastly, we're going to look at the profit of this doctrine. Why does God even mention it to us? I want something practical for Monday. Well, it is practical. It lets you live for eternity with the hope that our hope is not in the Democratic Party. It is not in the Republican Party. But it is in that blessed hope, the looking forward, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us look tonight at the pillars of the rapture. 
Let's look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And verse 14 makes it clear, if we believe that Jesus died, that is the first pillar that holds up the rapture doctrine, that we can be raptured from here and go immediately into the presence of the Lord, it is based on the fact that Jesus died. Now the word if here does not suggest uncertainty or doubt, but logical sequence. It's similar to the word since, or based on the fact that Jesus died. You see, our Lord's death satisfied the demands of God's righteousness and holiness. The punishment we fully deserve, Jesus became our propitiation. He appeased the wrath of the Father. What you deserve, what I deserve for our sins, was laid on Christ. As the Word of God tells us that God, He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Not only did God forgive me of my sin when I came to faith in Christ, He not only took away my sin, but He imputed to me An alien righteousness, that is a foreign righteousness. He took away my sin and he gave me in exchange the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that reality, I can stand before God completely innocent and 100% righteous. Wow, you're very confident. You're kind of stuck up. Righteousness? That's not the issue because I won't be clothed in my own righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. And that is why I, can be, I will be raptured and in his presence because of the death of Christ. That is the first pillar that enables us to be in the presence of God. But not only the death of Christ is the one pillar, the next pillar, or the next leg of the stool, if you will. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, rose again, the resurrection of Christ, a fundamental doctrine of the Bible. As the Bible states, God can, quote, be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Why? Romans 4.25 says, who Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Even so, the believer's resurrection is connected to Jesus. Jesus put it this way. Because I live, ye shall live also, John 14, 19. The basis of my one day that I will live in the presence of God, one day I will, if I die before the rapture, I'll be raised incorruptible, is not based on a feeling I get down my spine. It's not based on some warm burning in the bosom. It is based on the historical reality, the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Because he lives, I will live as well. So the second pillar is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the last pillar of the rapture here is seen in verse 15. 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the rapture doctrine is not his own speculation. He didn't make it up one night because he was bored and he wanted to write some end time fiction novels and make a million dollars in Rome. That was not the reason why he wrote this. This was a word from God. This is something God revealed to him. And this is why we know it is true. The phrase, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, this phrase has the authoritative tone of inspired writer, writing what God has disclosed to him. So these are the three pillars here. Before, As he's discussing the rapture, it is built upon the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that Paul says, I didn't dream this up, I received this by revelation from God. Now let us go on, secondly, to the participants of the rapture. The participants of the rapture. Verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Here are two groups, those that are alive and those that are dead in Christ. The two groups that participate in the rapture are those which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, and them which are asleep, those who have died in Christ. Now, Paul uses the plural pronoun here, we, because he believed that this rapture could happen at any moment, no signs necessary. He could be part of that final generation. Paul believed the words of Christ when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels in heaven. No one knows. It is a signless event. No one knows. Not even Harold Camping, by the way. Because if he really believed it, he would sign over his property a week after supposedly the end of the world, but he won't sign over his property to anybody. He doesn't believe what he says. And the Bible says no man knows, and no man knows. Several other passages express Paul's fervent hope and expectation that he could be alive at this rapture event when which our Lord snatches up his own before the tribulation period. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We, he includes himself there. He he believes in the imminent return of Christ. He can come at any moment to take away his own. But yet he also realized that he might die before the rapture. He was realistic. That's why he said in Philippians 1.20, his desire was that Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul reassured the Thessalonians that those of their number who had died in Christ would not miss the rapture. Moreover, the living will not prevent the dead. That is, they will not take precedence over them or gain an advantage over them. Both will be caught up in the air. So simply put, the participants of the rapture are all those who have come to a true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the participants of the rapture. Thirdly, 
as we walk through this passage, we look at the plan of the rapture. The plan of the rapture, or the order of events here, in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So here's the event. We see, first of all, the Lord himself will return for his people. It is the Lord snatching up his people, which is interesting because both in Matthew cha- and Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24 that describes our Lord's physical second coming to judge the world, he sends his angels to gather people. And yet it is here that the Lord comes himself and returns for his people. Secondly, it is Jesus who will descend from heaven just as he physically ascended. Third, when Jesus comes down from heaven, he will do so with a shout. This word shout here has a military ring to it. As if the commander is calling his troops the fallen line. It is interesting, by the way, when our Lord, the Bible says, when Jesus shouted. We see him here descending with a shout. In fact, as a result of his shout, not only will the living be caught up in the air, but the dead respond to his shout. The dead in Christ literally come out of the graves. Their souls are reunited with their bodies in the air. In fact, that happens often. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, and after being dead for four days, there was no doubt that he was dead. His sister says, by now he stinketh. That's old English for he stinks. He was rotting. And Jesus came to the tomb. The Bible says he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? The dead came out of the grave. Lazarus came out of the grave. When Jesus was dying on the cross, and he uttered his last words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The Bible says he cried forth, and if you look carefully at Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, the Bible says that some dead people came out of graves. And yet we find the Lord again giving a shout. And again the dead in Christ come out of the grave their bodies and join their spirits in the air. Next we see the voice of the archangel will sound. Now in Jude 9, the only other passage in scripture that mentions an archangel, he is named as Michael. Scripture doesn't tell us if there's other archangels, possibly there is. Whoever he is, he adds his voice to the Lord's shout. Next, to the Lord's command in the archangel's voice will be added the sound of the trump of God. The sound of the trump of God. Trumpets were used for different reasons in the scriptures. They sounded, for example, Numbers 10.10 for Israel's feast times. They would use trumpets to make announcements to announce those times. 
In 2 Samuel 6.15, they're used for celebrations. In Numbers 10, to sound an alarm for a time of war. But the trumpet seems to have a twofold purpose. It was used in Exodus 19 to assemble God's people together. They sounded the trumpet to assemble the people of God. And in Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 9, the trumpet was used to signal the fact that deliverance had come for God's people. Next, we read here that the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is, the believers who have died before the rapture, their bodies will exit the graves first and will meet their souls in the air. And then the believers that are alive will be caught up In fact, John speaks of the fact how believers, when they get their new bodies, their bodies will be like Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will have an immortal body. Finally, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This word translated caught up refers to a strong, irresistible, almost violent act of being snatched up. This is what happened, by the way, to Enoch before the flood. Before God's judgment fell on the world in a universal flood in the days of Noah, God snatched out Enoch, for Enoch walked with God and was not. He never saw death. He was raptured before God's judgment fell on this world. We see Elijah, good Bible name Elijah. I like Elijah. He was taken up and he never saw death. The Apostle Paul, the Word of God says in St. Corinthians 12, he was caught up to the third heaven. He was taken out, snatched up. Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 8, he was, uh, he was not raptured uh, vertically, but horizontally. That is, he was taken by the Spirit. In one moment, he was speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and boom, the Spirit of God raptured him sideways, and he went to another city immediately to go preach. Sort of a sideways rapture, I guess. The sequence of events at Christ's coming, following the tribulation, by the way, demands a pre-tribulational rapture. You see, at the rapture, Christ comes for his own in this present passage. At the second coming, those who are converted during the tribulation period, they are gathered. But they're gathered by angels in Matthew chapter 25, distinctly different. At the rapture, resurrection is prominent, as we see in this passage. But at the second coming of Christ, at the end of the tribulation period, Scripture does not mention the resurrection. At the rapture, Christ comes to reward believers. But at the second coming, he comes to judge the earth. At the rapture, the Lord snatches away true believers from the earth. But at the second coming, he takes away unbelievers to judgment. At the rapture, 
unbelievers remain on the earth. At the second coming, unbelievers are taken and judged, and believers are left on the earth. They are the ones that enter into the millennial kingdom. Concerning the rapture, Scripture does not mention the establishment of Christ's kingdom. But at the second coming of Christ, our Lord sets up a literal kingdom. At the rapture, believers will receive glorified bodies. Whereas at the second coming, no one receives glorified bodies. So we see as they enter in the millennium, there will be even some who will physically die. So we see a distinction between the rapture where Christ comes for his own in the air and the second coming where he literally comes the Mount Olivet there and comes the judge, the living. So we see here the plan or the order of the rapture. Now, fourthly, let us look at the profit of this rapture doctrine. It's profit for us today. Verse 18, Wherefore, Comfort one another with these words. The benefit of understanding the rapture is not to satisfy our curiosity. We're all curious. We're all by nature nosy neighbors. We like to be in the know. Someone says, I think so-and-so is the Antichrist. You see, if you spell his name backwards, forwards, diagonally, he's the Antichrist. And we say, oh, show me your evidence. We want to know. But that wasn't why Paul was writing this. He was pinning this by the inspiration of the Spirit of God to comfort believers in the midst of suffering. The God of all comfort grants to all believers the encouraging comfort of knowing that Christ one day will return. And they will not go into this, this time of great tribulation in which God's wrath is unleashed. Why? Why are we not going to go into this tribulation period to receive the condemnation of God? Well, Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We cannot suffer condemnation with the world, for Christ has received in his body our condemnation. It is finished, he cried. It is paid in full. He has suffered and taken upon himself the wrath of the Father. There is no wrath for us to drink. He has taken that for us. The rapture doctrine also profits us in that, number one, it causes us to be steadfast. Or I should say maybe it ought to cause you to be steadfast. James 5.8 The word of God says, be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Just as a farmer, when he goes out and he plants his seed, he doesn't wake up the next morning, look out the window, say, wow, do I have a crop yet? He knows it's going to take time. He's going to need to be patient. He's going to need to be enduring in this work of planning and reaping a harvest. Just as a farmer waits patiently through the entire growing season of his crop, so also our believers await patiently for the return of Christ for them. We're to establish our hearts, meaning we're to be resolute. We're to be firm in our courage and our attitude to be committed to Christ until he comes, until the trumpet sounds, to stick with the stuff, to stay faithful to him until we're taken out of this world. 
He delays his return because God is still redeeming those that he has chosen before the foundation of the world. But we are to be constantly, as Titus 2.13 tells us, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the rapture doctrine profits us in that it causes us to be steadfast. Like Paul, he believed it could happen at any moment. If we have that attitude and let God's word affect us practically, we'll want to be steadfast. And when we're tempted around 5 o'clock or so on Sunday evening, and we're sitting on the couch, and it seems almost like handles have come out to snatch us and to hold us down and keep us from going to church in the evening, we'll remember the Lord can come tonight. That rapture can happen. And there you are in front of the television. You ought to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The rapture doctrine profits us in that it causes us to be steadfast. Secondly, the rapture doctrine profits us in that it causes us to be prayerful. It causes us to be prayerful. 1 Peter 4, 7 The word of God states there, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. In this passage, God's word is calling believers to live obediently and expectedly in the light of our king's return, which is at hand. The doctrine of the imminent return of Christ should lead the believer into a watchful pursuit of holiness. That ought to give him a pilgrim mentality. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. It says we're to be watchful unto prayers. That is, the Christian whose mind is on the imminent return of Christ will have a lifestyle of communion with Christ, knowing he could see him at any moment. It could happen at any time, so it keeps your prayer life hot, your communion with God real. Thirdly, The rapture doctrine also profits us in that it causes us to be faithful to church. Causes us to be faithful to church. Hebrews 10, 24, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one one another. And so much the more... As ye see the day approaching, what day? The day of our Lord's return. Remember the context of the book of Hebrews. It was a, an epistle written, not to the Mexicans. It was written to the Hebrews. That's why it's called the epistle of the Hebrews. And these Hebrew believers were suffering greatly. Because they had come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah they had lost their jobs. They had been cut off from other family to that who did not believe in Christ, and they were suffering greatly. And some of them were turning their backs on Christ. Some false believers were turning away from the faith and apostatizing. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing them to encourage them to stay faithful, to persevere, to follow Christ regardless of the cost, to pick up their cross, to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and to follow him. It is in that context of suffering 
that the writer of Hebrews writes the Hebrew Christians who are suffering greatly for the faith in Jesus Christ and tells them, don't abandon the local church. Don't abandon, don't stop being faithful to what you know is right as you assemble with God's people. And you ought to be exhorting one another and so much the more, much more, as you see that day, the coming of Christ approaching. If we have that attitude, that he can come at any moment for his own, that ought to motivate us to be faithful to the local church. When God's people gather for the worship of our coming king, we ought to want to be there with God's people. Fourthly, the rapture doctrine profits us in that, number four, it causes us to have holy conduct. It causes us to have holy conduct and godliness. In 2 Peter 3.11, after discussing the coming of our Lord, the second coming, in 2 Peter 3.11, the word of God says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, all the things that he had been describing there of our Lord's second coming, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Knowing these things are true, how much more of a godly life should you live? Knowing, expecting him to come, it ought to, it ought to affect your everyday living. I remember 16 years ago, my wife and I were first married. We visited our, which ended up becoming our home church, Faith Baptist Church. And we visited there and we enjoyed the services. And that next week, I had a dog. He was in our front yard with my dog, Poor Boy. And Poor Boy was barking up a storm. He was a little but a vicious dog. He was a little bit mighty. And he was barking up a storm. And I thought, man, who is, what, what's going on? It was around 7 o'clock at night. And I looked through the window. It's the pastor of that Baptist church. And my wife had all the laundry out on the couch. She was slowly folding it, watching TV. We're talking. The dishes were still out from dinner. We're just taking our time. Looked back at her and said, the pastor's here. He's here. Oh, no. She starts putting away all our garments that were out. She's cleaning up, taking the dishes, putting them in, running, cleaning up the house, cleaning the table, cleaning everything. And then we get to the door. Hi, Pastor. So good to see you. Oh, boy, we cleaned up that house because the man of God was visiting. How much more should you clean up your house morally and spiritually because the king of kings is coming? If we have that expectant attitude, we won't be so lukewarm and in love with this present world. We'll be in love with the Savior and we'll see beyond the wickedness of this world. In fact, 1 John 3 and verse 2 or verse 3 says, And every man that hath this hope of the coming of Christ... Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope, this doctrine, is not just a, uh, it's not just a theory out there to be argued about. 
But it is a living, everyday reality. It ought to cause us to want to live dedicated, devoted lives to our soon-coming King, Jesus Christ. This is the practical outworking. It causes us to want to have godly lives. Think about it. How many people, how many church members, if the, you knew the pastor was coming at 7 o'clock on Tuesday, you probably wouldn't be playing your average DVD on television, would you? But let us have more reverence for God himself, who's coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air, for that trumpet of sound is for his people to be snatched up before the storm. Two years after the wildfires of 2003, San Diego regional authorities there established a reverse 911 in which when emergencies would happen, they would call the homes of those who are affected by the emergency in a certain area. 911 would call them instead of the people calling 911. When that happened and Fires were breaking out in that area. They, they used the reverse 911 to warn people to vacate their homes, to leave their homes because of the fires that were in the area. Many lives were saved when they picked up the phone and received the warning. But many people ignored it. Oh, 911 on the caller ID. What do they want? A donation? And people, many, ignored it to the peril of losing their lives. God has given us a reverse 911 through the prophets of old and through the apostles. And God has warned us of an impending storm. It is not a man-made storm. It is the storm of a just and thrice holy God who will judge this world. And he warns the world And praise God for those that know Christ. We know the truth of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That storm is approaching, but those who know Christ are snatched before God's wrath is unleashed on this world. But yet I challenge you as a believer, you know those who are not ready for God's storm. And I understand that to think, and we want to think biblically, we cannot convert anyone. And I understand that. But don't ever think that that alleviates your responsibility to sow the gospel seed in the hearts of men and women. We are responsible to preach the gospel to every creature. To warn men of a soon coming king. And to warn men to flee from the wrath to come and to fly unto Jesus Christ by faith and be saved. I wonder if we knew if Christ was going to come in two weeks, if that would affect the amount of people that come out on visitation. I wonder if it would affect the way that you speak, treat, and act towards your unsaved neighbor and family. You see, this is the practical outworking of this doctrine. May it encourage us to warn those of the coming wrath to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to be ready for the soon coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will come in the air.
to snatch out his own before the storm of the great tribulation period. Father, may we be moved by these truths and a greater obedience. May we be encouraged by these truths to greater faithfulness. Father, we pray that you would bless work in our hearts during this time. Help us, Lord. Shake us out of a lukewarm spirit and set our souls on fire with greater love for Jesus Christ and the souls of men and women. Bless your truth, Lord, we ask this now. 